This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story, well, it's the story of a World War II veteran who was a member of the Naval Medical Corps. Judy Pearson brings us the story. My father was a World War II veteran who never left you wondering where he stood on a topic. When he came to visit me in Phoenix after my mother died, I took him to an area antique store. It was full of military memorabilia, including a World War II era Jeep. While Dad was digging through campaign medals and old postcards, the store owner shared with me his most recent find, a collection of personal items belonging to a deceased veteran named Estel Myers. He spread the treasure across the counter. Myers' death certificate, his Bronze Star commendation, a handwritten letter, and a newspaper article, now fragile and yellowed with the passage of time. It told of a piece of World War II history I had never heard before. Most Americans know that the war began with the attack on Pearl Harbor and ended with the atomic bombs. But the vast middle of the Pacific War isn't well documented in most history books. My father later shared his thoughts on that omission, peppered with colorful expletives. I found Estel's brother, Ken. He lived just 20 miles from my home. Over the course of the next two years, I spent hours poring over his family albums and listening to the stories of their sacrifices. I scoured libraries and archives. The result, which became my book, Belly of the Beast, a POW's inspiring true story of faith, courage, and survival, tells not just Estel Meyer's story. It's the story of all of the young men whose names and courage never made it to the history books. Estel came from a simple Kentucky sharecropping family. When times were tough during the Depression, the Navy offered an exotic and exciting life. Estel joined up, landing in the Medical Corps. He was ultimately stationed in the Pacific's playground, Manila in the Philippine Islands. Life unfolded like scenes from the movies, parties and booze, pretty girls, local customs mingled with American swagger. War was the last thing on Estel's or anyone else's mind. Despite myriad warning signs now clearly seen in retrospect, Hitler's advances in Europe were what held the Western world's attention. Because of that, the Imperial Japanese Army's unmitigated attacks in December 1941 caught everyone by surprise. In addition to the infamous death and destruction at Pearl Harbor, Japanese fighter squadrons attacked six other sites across Asia. Malaya, Hong Kong, Guam, Wake Island, Midway Island, and Manila in the Philippine Islands. Bombs raining down, Commanding General Douglas MacArthur realized Manila could not be saved by the unprepared American Army. He declared it an open city, military terminology meaning no retaliatory actions would be taken. Yet the Japanese onslaught continued. All able military personnel were evacuated. Some were sent across Manila Bay to the Bataan Peninsula, while others continued further south to Corregidor, a rocky island stronghold. 
From there, MacArthur and his team would make plans to retake the islands. But the Japanese military proved a powerful combatant, and MacArthur, against his wishes, was forced to flee to Australia for regrouping. The Manila Hospital, to which Estel Myers was then assigned, was filled with wounded and dying men who could not be moved with the rest of the troops. When the Japanese ships arrived filled with invasion forces on January 2, 1942, Estel became one of America's first prisoners of war. Language was not the only barrier between the American medical personnel and the conquering army. The Japanese Bushido Code was a centuries-old belief that espoused willingness to die for one's superiors if necessary. Surrendering as the medical corps had done, and ultimately what those in Bataan and Corregidor would be forced to do, was considered cowardly under Bushido. The ceasefire the Americans asked for to spare more deaths only caused the Imperial Army to despise their captives even more. In their minds, those POWs were disgraced and unworthy of soldierly or humane treatment. Thus began an ugly chapter in human history. Estel and the rest of the medical corps, along with the patients who were still alive, were moved to Manila's decrepit Bilibid prison, where they set up a makeshift hospital. It was here that the survivors of the Bataan Death March arrived. After their three-month battle trying to hold the Philippines, the 70-mile forced march had begun with 80,000 American and Filipino POWs. They had depleted their own supplies defending the peninsula, and the Japanese had no food or water to give them. In addition, they were tortured and brutalized, all of which resulted in the death of nearly 20,000 men. The men who lived to the end of the march were in deplorable condition. Those the Japanese deemed useful as laborers were transferred to nearby prison camps. The others became bilibid patients. The filth and lack of food and medical supplies made treating them nearly impossible for Estel and the other corpsmen. And the unspeakable atrocities continued. And you've been listening to Judy Pearson telling us the story of a POW in the Pacific Theater. And we learned, we got some insight into why our soldiers, our POWs, got treated so poorly and had to do with that honor code of the Japanese warriors. Surrender just wasn't an option. So they looked at our soldiers like they were cowards. Of course, this is the Geneva Convention. Why we surrender is because there's honor in surrendering. And the alternative is just so horrible and inhuman. But the Japanese soldiers saw our soldiers as less than human, as cowards, and thus treated them terribly. 20,000 of our boys and many women, too, died in the Bataan Death March. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Estelle Meyer's story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Estelle Myers, a World War II enlistee in the Naval Medical Corps and one of the first prisoners of war in the Second World War. We continue with Judy Pearson. As was the case with citizens in Europe under Nazi rule, the majority of the Japanese people were completely unaware of the brutality of the Imperial Japanese Army against their captives. Even today, these stories are omitted from Japanese history books. And then things got worse. As the tide of the war started to turn and the Japanese military began using kamikaze tactics, they found themselves without sufficient workers increased war production was needed in their factories and mines. They realized the wealth of labor they possessed in the form of POWs, 78,000 of them across the Pacific Ocean. They began transporting these already weakened and tortured men to the Japanese homeland in what came to be known as hell ships. Prisoners were crammed into cargo holds of huge tankers, They had little air, food, or water for journeys that lasted weeks. Many died from asphyxia, starvation, or dysentery. They went mad from the cramped quarters, and some even drank the blood of those who had died. Worst of all, these prisoner transports were unmarked. Allied submarines and aircraft targeted them as enemy ships, firing on them. Eight hell ships had sailed for Japan. All were attacked to a greater or lesser extent. One sank with her hold still filled with POWs, nearly 1,800 of them. Only five men who'd been on deck at the time survived to tell their story. On December 13, 1944, after years of physical and psychological torture, Estelle Myers and 1,620 other American captives marched aboard the ninth and final Japanese hell ship, the Orioku Maru. Before she even left Manila Bay, American bombers attacked the unmarked ship. Still able to maneuver, she made her way to Subic Bay on the west side of the Philippines' main island of Luzon, where the continued strafing finally sunk her. Nearly 300 POWs died from the conditions, the bombing, or having been shot by the Japanese as they tried to escape. But Estelle Myers survived. Corralled and unprotected on a tennis court for several days, more men died from lack of water and the elements. Ken Myers had joined the Navy shortly after his brother had been captured. In an unbelievable irony, Ken, now part of MacArthur's return to liberate the Philippines, stepped onto the island just as Estelle and the other POWs were loaded into two more tankers to continue the journey to Japan. Further unimaginable deprivation awaited those prisoners. When they arrived in Taiwan to refuel, they were again attacked by Allied flyers. One of the ships was disabled and more prisoners died in the attack. With a smaller number of men, only the remaining ship was needed. By the time it finally arrived in frigid Japan on January 29, 1945, weeks overdue, only 549 of the original 1,620 remained. In rags and shivering in below freezing temperatures, Estelle was among them. 
The men were sent to a collection of prison camps in Fukuoka, Japan, and put to work under brutal guards. The Nazis surrendered in Europe on May 7, 1945, but for Japan, the war raged on. Then, on August 6, 1945, unimaginable destruction fell from a clear blue sky. 10,000-pound Little Boy, the world's first fully detonated atomic bomb, fell on Hiroshima, Japan. If the Japanese didn't surrender, the U.S. promised it would drop another bomb. Fat Man was ready with a short list of targets. Just 44 miles from the Fukuoka prison camps where Estel was working, the city of Kokura was first on that list. The morning of August 11, 1945, not a word had come from the Japanese military nor the emperor. A second American B-29 took off from Tinian, prepared to drop its jumbo bomb. But unlike five days earlier over Hiroshima, the sky over Kokura was obscured by smoke and haze. So the pilot flew on to his secondary target, Nagasaki, and dropped his payload. A great towering mushroom effect could be seen going higher and higher and reaching into the stratosphere. Because the bomb was exploded high above the ground, the greatest part of its harmful radioactive material was dissipated in the stratosphere. As a result, the area under the explosion was relatively free from radioactivity. Persons entering Nagasaki shortly after the explosion to do rescue work sustained no ill effect or injury. In an area of a little more than three square miles, there was very severe damage by blast and fire. Most buildings were reduced to rubble. Still recognizable from the air are the skeleton remainders of the Mitsubishi plants, the large steel and arms works, and the ordnance factory devoted to the manufacture of torpedoes. Had the bomb fallen onto Kokura, it would certainly have destroyed the Fukuoka camps. After all they had been through, Estel and the other prisoners would have died. Even 95 miles away, they all witnessed the blinding light from Nagasaki. It wasn't until two weeks later, after the camps had been liberated and the prisoners were boarding the awaiting Allied hospital ships, that they learned how the war ended and how narrowly they escaped. By that time, the original Oryoku Maru group was down to only 372, Estel still among them. After having been one of America's first to be captured, he was finally going home, among the last POWs to do so. The prisoners were in horrible physical and emotional condition. They suffered from all manner of diseases and had lost nearly half of their body weight. When Estel finally sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge on October 6, 1945, most of the post-war hysteria that had rocked a grateful nation months earlier had ended. Estel didn't care. He reunited with his brothers, including Ken, and his sister, married the sweetheart he had left behind, and fathered five children. He moved his family to Phoenix in 1959, but physical problems, no doubt caused by his horrific experiences, 
plagued Estel the rest of his life. He had three heart attacks before the age of 50 and was then diagnosed with lung cancer. On September 12, 1973, Estel Myers died of his fourth heart attack at just 53 years old. I made certain the items my friend at the antique store had acquired were returned to his family. For them, they were true treasure. Probably the most precious thing was the letter Estel had written to his children several months before he died. His ending words speak volumes about the man. Believe with all your heart in God, country, and family. Be truthful. Be loving, patient, and forgiving with your spouses and children. Give an honest day's work in whatever you do. Believe in the golden rule. Be loyal and honest to your country. Be a good American and thankful that you are one. I love you all. Remember Papa. Papa. And thanks to Judy Pearson for that story, and thanks to Robbie for doing such a great job producing it and bringing it to us. And again... That was the Estel Myers story, a POW story. And we tell these World War II stories for a reason, not to bring you down, but hopefully to inspire you and also to remind us all that so many did so much for future generations. These stories are real and are a fundamental part of all of our stories. Estel Myers' story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories. And up next, one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rossiniak. He'll be reading from the book Chicken Soup for the Soul, Time to Thrive, which can be found and bought on Amazon.com. This piece is entitled, But You Were Just a Cop, the story of how he became a writer. Here's Stephen. I used to dream of being a writer of possessing the talent and the ability to cohesively convert my thoughts to words on paper and then offering my pieces to the public for their personal reading consumption. Oh, I dreamed of being a writer all right. If only I had the talent and the ability to do so. But despite my shortcomings, I somehow succeeded. And surprisingly, well, at least to some, 
The seeds for my eventual success were sown courtesy of my former career in law enforcement. But long before I could hope to become any kind of writer, and even before commencing my cop career, writing and I would first have to be formally introduced. The C that I received from my required freshman writing course in college should have put me on notice that I wasn't a writer. But somehow, it didn't. While my instructor might have assumed that my failure to comprehend the essentials of proper sentence structure and effective writing techniques clearly demonstrated that I had no business entertaining any thoughts of writing, I apparently missed that memo. Shortly after concluding the course, I decided to write a book. I'd noticed a paperback belonging to my younger sister. It was a lightweight literary precursor to what would be categorized today as young adult. After giving it a quick read, I concluded that it amounted to little more than trash. But then, an epiphany. If this was what kids were reading, and if this was what paperback publishers were printing, I could write this stuff. I mean, how hard could it be anyway? As it turned out, trash writing was harder than I thought, and so I asked a friend for help. Wayne, like me, had absolutely no knowledge of the writing process, but he had one qualification that surpassed my own. He'd received a B in our writing class. Wayne agreed to co-author my masterpiece. And so, with only a storyline to follow, we got down to the business of writing a tale about a couple of crazy kids spending a crazy summer together on the Jersey Shore. It was going to be real trashy, and it was going to be a monster. Our completed manuscript actually caught the attention of a few publishers. But in the end, real life trumped our part-time literary endeavors. Wayne became an accountant, and I became a cop. Marriages and kids soon followed, and suddenly, our trashy monster was forgotten, banished to an old briefcase, handed a life sentence with little chance of parole. Several years later, I was seated at the dais of a banquet hall stage, about to share my thoughts concerning current family values. I was speaking at this conference as a result of my background as a police detective who specialized in juvenile and family matters. I delivered my prepared remarks, which included several personal stories relevant to the topic. Afterwards, during the applause, I noticed some of the audience members were smiling, while others were crying. Their responses caught me off guard. Later, while I was still considering this audience reaction, I thought about the power of words, and I wondered if I could take some of the key elements from my speech and incorporate them into a short essay. The idea of using words to make people laugh and cry while still delivering the intended message intrigued me. That night, I wrote a rather mundane piece about my son kissing me goodnight. When finished, I wrote a second, 
this time about my daughter. And when I was done with that, I wondered if either was good enough to be published. Some magazine editors wondered this as well. I'd sent both essays to various publications and received several rejection notices in return. I began questioning whether anyone would ever be interested in reading the kind of personal pieces that I was now writing. As it turned out, somebody was. One afternoon, I received an acceptance notice. And a few days later, another. My essay about my son kissing me goodnight would eventually appear in several publications, including a Chicken Soup for the Soul book. The piece about my daughter was also published. And just like that, I was a writer. I've written lots of pieces since then, many of which have also been published. And these days, when people who are familiar with my background want to talk to me about my writing, some still feel the need to mention, but you were just a cop. As if my previous profession should negate my ability to string together a few sentences into a publication-worthy piece. But, to be honest, I credit my former career with affording me numerous opportunities to speak publicly, thus necessitating the need to craft relevant speeches that were both entertaining and informative. The old make them laugh and cry while still delivering the intended message format that I still use to this very day. Had I not been a cop, it's doubtful that I'd be sharing my thoughts through my writings today. I still dream of being a writer, except now I dream of being a better one. It's become a passion, and I'm humbled to know that people are sometimes moved by my writing, which, by the way, may someday include a trashy novella for kids. You never know. But until then, I'll just continue offering the reading public my scribbled thoughts. The product of a not especially talented grade C writing ex-cop. Imagine that. And thanks to Stephen Rosiniak for sharing his story. And thanks to Faith for producing it and bringing it up to air. Great job as always. And for folks who want to get this story, it's available at Chicken Soup for the Soul, Time to Thrive. And you can find that Chicken Soup for Soul in all of them at Amazon.com. These are such great stories to share with family. And by the way, it was interesting when he was talking about the fact that he was just a cop and the but before that, but you were just a cop. There's no buts here on our American stories, and the word just, we don't like that either. He was a cop, and it's an important job, and we don't see any job as being more important than any other here in this country. Every kind of job matters and all work is dignified. And if anything, he became a writer because he was a cop. And so many people in ordinary jobs see extraordinary things, and people in their toughest circumstance, as cops do, as nurses do, and even accountants like his buddy Wayne. I mean, I have so many accountant friends who say, well, you got to see people in distress when they owe more money than they have to the IRS and what it does to marriages and families and lives. 
And we share all these stories and our American stories because, well, all of them make up the fabric of this great country. Stephen Raciniak's story here on Our American Stories. And here's one Jersey boy hoping that Jersey opus he and his buddy Wayne did in high school. Well, it makes it to bookstores. Again, this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story we must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. 
Okay, play it. Gang. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, that's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Of course, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever. To me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training, they're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane. Drop a school on the church. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. In the early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this 
super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary. But my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube because he said it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy. He brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre. It's his solo record. It used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the four. Snoop, Doggy Dog, and Dr. Dre is at the door. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. Gangsta Rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth, and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. 
And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Story. Mountains he called home. He only lived just further Rome. Carson, Carson, oh Kit Carson. Mountain man in buckskin tan helped keep this country free. This is Our American Stories, and you were listening to Fess Parker singing Old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Lanchett, and we've done some stories on volume one of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles, and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post Fort Carson and the town Kit Carson in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 1809, 
in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings, he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who um, were in search of opportunity. For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Lick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle, loopholes, or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, We would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He does a huck fin and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood when he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language 
used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men, and these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. A mountain man's a lonely man and he leaves a lot behind It ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find that story doesn't always go the way you had in mind. And we return to the life of Kit Carson, as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp, if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by Native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment. Every summer, the big fur companies organize what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. 
And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye. But another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away, says Carson. We won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we? Singing grass and Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later, in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population, and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. Every summer, 
throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. I'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. The boy's gonna make it? He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the wild west. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages.
with the story of Kit Carson. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses, and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont. Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published on nearly every page he lavishes praise upon his fearless scout carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer as a guide as a frontiersman as an indian fighter in these books that were supposed to be reports they were actually grand adventure tales these books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that, and it would say, this is where you're going to find fresh water, this is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's Western border all the way to the Pacific. California, it says we are to continue our fine work in the West. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it, and he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term manifest destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. 18 days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, 
Carson rides to Washington, D.C. with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Kearney leading 1st United States Dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. We're going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. Made me believe he had the right to order me. Kit now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Carney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Kearney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. The Americans are trapped on Mule Hill no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle that erupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Carney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Carney himself, have been wounded. Carney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. Had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, 
to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasqual. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War and, through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest Destiny is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed. And he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C., at the time of Kit Carson's arrival, was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine, this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson is the very living 
breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is illiterate, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. It's them. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. It's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations, and she's also been gang-raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder, a man will always wonder where the fair wind blows. But the whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. 
In 1849 alone, some hundred thousand Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them. Uh, he hunted with them. He knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo call the removal the Long Walk, and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard, along with some of his favorite Ute warriors, or longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist N. Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that for him there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. He sided with certain groups and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. 
Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Josefa, gives birth to their eighth child, but complications set in, and within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23rd, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures, <coughs> calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 